0: Believe it or not, this was probably a, one of the more difficult passages for me to kind of figure out what to do with, um, precisely because a lot of it is a repetition of what we saw last week uh, in chapter 17, so uh, challenging in some ways, so nonetheless. Let's read the word of our God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent In the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Then he saw them. He ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three Sarahs of fine flour, knead it and make bread. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man. Who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. We need to pray, okay. Father, I'm reminded as we uh, start this, the words of your servant Peter, who said uh, that it is no trouble to remind the people of things. And here is one of those places where you remind us of something, some things that we, we looked at last week, and yet you develop them. You bring them a little farther. You remind us of godly things, both small and great. As we look at this passage from your word, I ask that you would help us to see ourselves as those who are in need, and you as the promise maker, as well as the promise keeper. We were made to know you, but our sinful nature often blinds us and distracts us. And so, reveal yourself to us now, by your word. We ask this in the name of the living and final word, Jesus, the eternal Son who took on flesh and bone. Amen. I should remember the day, but I don't remember it very well. It was the day that I arrived home from work to discover that there was good news awaiting me. My wife had this plastic thing in her hand, and the color had changed. And this was good news because the color had never changed. For years we had waited, for years we had hoped, for years we had prayed in very strange places um, for a child. And now this little thing said one was coming. And I almost couldn't believe it. It was almost too good to tr- be true. I almost had to wait for that little ultrasound picture that I just gave Jaden recently because I had rediscovered it clearing out my office. It was almost too good to be true that we were going to have a child. I was a tad incredulous, as you might imagine, because of so many disappointments. After so many, dis- you, 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 your heart starts to not want to hope anymore. That's probably how Sarah felt, and Abraham felt, both in 17 and in, here in 18, when they hear this news, this promise that Sarah will be with child, that she will bear a son. So let's keep that in mind, that incredulous sort of character of what's going on. Uh, the big idea that I, that I kind of see working in, in the three parts of the passage that I see today or that faith focuses on God, not on circumstances. Um, so let's kind of develop that a little bit. And the first part of it is kind of interesting, I guess, in some ways. Verses 1 through 8, I kind of view as that faith welcomes God's unlikely presence. This passage is like Genesis 17, as I mentioned, in a number of ways. And one of those ways is it starts off, boom, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Theophany. It starts with a theophany, and it basically this carries out through the entire chapter. We're not going to end that theophany with uh, what we stopped with today in the middle of the chapter. It's going to continue into next week. But God shows up. He's not having a vision. He's not having a hallucination. He's not having a dream, but God appears as if he were a man. When this happens, Abraham has moved, returned to the trees of Mamre, which are... Uh, if I remember right on our little map, um, by Hebron, not too far from the River Jordan, kind of overlooking the valley there. And uh, it is, as it says in the text, the heat of the day, which means approximately when? Yeah, approximately noon. That time when our friends in Mexico say, siesta. And that's really what they would do, too. If you were traveling, you would find a place to hole up, get out of the heat of the day, and rest until it cooled off a little bit so you could resume your journey. And so that's part of what is strange here. Abraham is sitting by, by the front of his tent. He's, he's outside the door. He's a little bit in the shade. It's hot because, like here, it's the desert. And he's probably tired. And it's because he, he kind of looks up and, boom, there are three men standing in front of him. Three travelers that seem to appear almost out of nowhere. It's tempting for us to look at this passage and go, ooh, is this the Trinity? It'd be easy. After all, how many guys are there? Three. But it doesn't seem to be the Trinity that is here. It seems to be the Lord and two angels, precisely because uh, one of them seems to stand out apart from the rest. We're going to see that more clearly next week. When... Two of them move on, and one of them st- stays and tells Abram, Abraham, I keep forgetting, uh, we switched, what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he pleads with the Lord. But for some reason, Abraham does in fact recognize that the Lord is present. Because he says, Adonai. He uses the other form of address to, to, to reply, to reveal that this person in front of him is not just a sir, not just a, someone of greater distinction than himself, but in fact, the word that he uses is one that is found in places like Psalm 110 to refer to the one who is his covenant lord, his master. He recognizes that this one is superior to him and calls him Adonai. And in light of that, he asks for the privilege to serve and refresh them. He's showing hospitality. They've been traveling. Their feet are dirty. they're hot, they're caked with all kinds of things. He says, "Let me bring water that your feet might be refreshed and, and clean, and let me bring food that your, your bodies might be refreshed." And so he receives this permission, and then Abraham plays the perfect host. He expends all kind of energy, which when you think about his age, this is pretty astounding, actually uh, I guess. In my mind it is. He's running around and he's, Sarah, make some cakes. Grabs a calf. Brings it to one of his servants. Fix this up quickly. Grabs some curds and some milk and brings them. And so what he prepares is really a banquet for them. It's not just a little bit of bread and a little bit of water. Okay, you're on your way. But he prepares a very nice meal. The presence of the curds and, and and the goat milk. Most likely goat milk here. My kids used to like the G. Jade no longer likes the G. She's moved on to cow's milk. But he brings out this, this feast that is meant to refresh and strengthen them. It's tempting for me as a pastor to look at this passage and go, ah, how does this fit with Leviticus 3? Is, is this really a fellowship meal that's going on? And because when covenants were made, usually then there was a meal, a banquet that took place. And we see this in Leviticus 3 as part of the the worship of God's people. After the sin offering has been made, after the peace offering is made, there was also a fellowship meal in which you ate in the presence of God. But Abraham doesn't eat. So, my thought got squashed. He brings this to them that they might eat. And he stands off to the side, perhaps recognizing that he is not their equal. He doesn't quite belong Eating with them. And so as I'm working on the whiteboard, I'm kinda of like, why is this text here? Why is this here? Why is God thought it was important? So therefore it is important. But the question was why? Why is this is this merely a, a repetition of certain things to affirm what we found in Genesis seventeen last week? But what I see in addition to that is that Abraham, by faith, welcomed God, however unlikely his presence seemed. Remember, we tend to think of these guys back then as like God was showing up every third day. This is a rare experience. This is not what Abraham expected to happen that day. He didn't wake up kind of going, oh yeah, God's popping by after lunch. This is completely unexpected. We don't know how long it was after what takes place in Genesis 17. It's obviously less than a year, because God had promised within a year. And so this is probably within a month or so of what takes place. And so he's not expecting God to show up. But when God shows up, he embraced him. He welcomed him. He celebrated, so to speak, in God's presence. He served him in an appropriate way. And so by faith, Abraham welcomed God, even though his presence seemed quite unlikely. Which seems as a great contrast, as I pondered this a little bit this week, in the response of God's people when Jesus shows up. Not just in a the theophany, but really in flesh, in blood. He shows up, and they kill him. They reject him. They scorn him. How hard it is sometimes for us, even people who say they are people of faith, to embrace the real God when he's really there. We find even from Revelation 3, a passage which is often taken out of context uh, to imply that it's somehow evangelistic. And what happens is when Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he's he's knocking at the door of the Christian, at the church, and saying, will you let me in? Because that particular church had begun to exclude Christ. Christ who wanted fellowship with his people and they were keeping him out. So churches can do that too. Worship is us gathering together as God's people. But it is also us gathering together with God. That's that's what's meant to take place here, not just in the Lord's table, but even now as we sit, as we sing all of these things. He's enthroned upon our praises. He's supposed to be present here. Do we recognize his presence here, or do we just sort of treat it like another thing we do on Sunday morning before we get to go home and watch NFL? Or are we going, rats, I can't watch NFL. The early games on the East Coast start soon. Oh, they've started. I get confused now. I'm not used to the time thingy here. But, you know, we you know what I'm saying. Do we recognize he is here? Do by faith we embrace the fact that he is here, that he seeks our fellowship? That worship is more significant than merely Getting in your car in nice clothes, going to a place with other people who are wearing mostly nice clothes, singing a few songs, saying a couple prayers, listening to, to the pastor babble about something and going home. God is here. He's not here physically. But he is here in the power of the Holy Spirit to be with his people. So he's not here physically, but he's here. And faith welcomes his gracious presence. It shifts from verses 9 uh, 9 through 14. We see that that God's promises really rest upon his power and not upon our faith. And that's something that uh, certain brothers and sisters of ours have a hard time recognizing at times. God reaffirms his promise from Genesis 17. He starts off by kind of going, Oh yeah, by the way, where's your wife? Because I don't know if Abraham told her. We don't, we don't know whether what happened in 17, he communicated to his wife, aside from the fact of, oh, yeah, the boys and I were going out to get circumcised. We know that, obviously, she knew that. But we don't know if he communicated the fact that, by the way, um, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And so God makes sure that she knows. Where is she? She's in the tent. Uh, surely, okay, this is almost like when Jesus says, truly, truly. You know, amen, amen. God is emphasizing this. Get this point when I return within in a year at the appointed time, she is going to have a son. Get this, do you understand this? Do you believe this? Are you going to act like it? And here we have Sarah, who is eavesdropping. you know she's kind of by the door she's she's like I was when I was a kid. Any of you ever do that? My parents would have parties front have people over, and I'm banished upstairs. And Like every, good, every kid, I don't want to miss anything. And so I would kind of hide at the top of the stairs and kind of try to listen. I don't know why it fascinated me, but here's Sarah, listening. And she laughs to herself. Not out loud. That's a key thing. Laughs to herself. She was probably very tempted to laugh out loud. But she stifled it, and she laughed to herself, just like Abraham did in chapter 17. He laughed to himself. So they both had, essentially, the same response to this promise of a child. They both focused on the odd timing of this announcement. Abraham focused upon their ages. It's like, yeah, yeah, now, I'm 89. She's almost 80. Hello? (laughs) We're old. How's this going to happen? I wish I was here when the Julians got married. You know, kind of think about that. Think about Amy for a moment. Here she is, retired. Now, Lord, you want me to be married? (laughs) That would have been a beautiful thing to see. That's sort of the sense here. You've waited so long. What, why, why now? When it seems like the, our life is supposed to be winding down and being over. Why now are you going to do this? He's focused, Mo, Moses is also focused on their age, as we see in this text. For he goes at length to mention this. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. And in case you didn't get it, advanced in years. Okay. <laughs> In case you didn't get it the first time, there's the second time. He's focusing on this. And not only that, but, it, but he says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Don't you like how sometimes the, the scriptures do, do kind of put things in a different way? <laughs> okay? She's hit menopause. Her days of, of barren children, from an earthly perspective, from a human perspective, they are done. It's not just that she's old, but it's also she's gone through menopause. This is not supposed to happen. There are great hindrances here, and this is exactly what Sarah tends to focus on. These hindrances, these obstacles, which in her mind seem huge. That there is no way in the world that I, Sarah, can have a child. She says, Now that I'm worn out, okay, she's not only old advanced in years. She's also, by her own testimony, worn out when, when used with regard to people. This has the idea of having wasting away. The idea, the sense that there is nothing left of her. My nana is 98, I think, this year. That's the picture I get. She's wasting away. I mean, she wasn't very much of a woman. To begin with, I mean, she was only about this tall. And now she's probably this tall. <laughs> she's looking more like Yoda every day, I think. Um, but it's not just that she's shrinking, she's lost her mind. She thinks my father is her husband. And she doesn't know who that weird woman is that one who's my mom. You know? She's wasting away. And that's the picture here of someone whose life is, is fleeing away. And she says, and now I'm going to have a baby? I can barely take care of myself. And you want me to nurse a child and raise a child. I can understand why she might laugh. I think it's tough in my mid-40s. Not my mid-80s and 90s. It has passed unlikely and has moved into the the territory of humanly impossible. It's sort of like Mary in Luke's gospel. The angel comes to her and what does she say? How can this be? She didn't laugh, (laughs) but she's wondering... How can this be, since she has not been with a man? How can she bear a child? And so it's a little different, but yet similar. How can it be? And that is when the Lord says this, Is anything too hard for the Lord? It is a subtle reminder of how he reveals himself at the very beginning of chapter 17. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Have you already forgotten this? Or has your husband not told you this? Hello. We are dealing with the Almighty God here. The one who made everything out of nothing. I think I can produce a baby here. This is not tall, or this is not a huge order, so to speak. And I'm going to top it later on because I'm going to produce a baby without a man. Yeah. God, unlike us, is not in awe of the obstacles. We see these obstacles and we, we wonder how it is going to happen, and, we've, and He begins to diminish in our sight, which is why J.B. Phillips wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. We tend to focus on our circumstances and we, they loom so large and so huge. Oh, how can, how can God deal with this situation? Well, Because He's the Lord Almighty, that's why. He can deal with it. It's not too hard for Him. We're going to see later on when Israel is about to go in the land, which is probably one of the reasons why this text is in Scripture, so the Israelites will remember this and remember who He is. They're about to go into the land of Canaan and what was their response? There are giants in the land. How are we going to do this? This is going to be so hard. You'd think the parting of the Red Sea hadn't happened. You'd think that the ten plagues that they witnessed hadn't happened. How could they not remember that they were dealing with God Almighty? And yet they did. The disciples almost 2,000 years later. Same sort of thing. We talked about this in Sunday school, one of those passages. The rich young ruler walks away, and they're like, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Remember, folks, he's saying, it's not about what people can do. It is about what God has promised to do and is able to do. He does not make promises he has no intention of keeping. He does not make promises that he can 't keep he 's not a politician chicken in every pot ah, right okay it doesn 't matter which politi- any politician they all make these outlandish promises. Do they have the power to keep those promises no. He has the power to keep every promise he has ever made, and he will keep all of those promises. Not just that, but in the scripture we have this one, this one dad whose son has a demon, and he, this demon keeps trying to kill his son by tossing him into the fire and all of these things. And this man comes to Jesus and he says, If you can do anything. He had enough faith to come to Jesus but he had enough unbelief to say if. Jesus casts out the demon, doesn't he? Now, I don't know about you, but I saw the exorcist, and I'm thinking demon, a big obstacle. Okay? Too big for me. Not too big for him. Which causes the the father to cry out, I believe... Help my unbelief. See, both of those were present within him. As I said, he had enough to come to Jesus, but not enough to know that Jesus definitely would do this and definitely could do this. But Jesus saw the misery, and and he, he alleviated the misery of this child. What else? I thought. Imagine the disciples for a moment. You're going to rise again. Rise he's able to rise again. And in light of that, we, we, we read some of the promises in, uh, in Corinthians this morning. That's among the things that, that are in that passage that drew that to me to, to have that as our, our scripture reading this morning about the resurrection. He will raise us up. Doesn't that seem hard? If you think about it, you turned to dust. Okay. My forefathers are dust. Yet he is able to raise them up. Not just lifeless, dust. He's able to create a new, renewed body and raise them to everlasting life, whether that's good or bad. Um, Judgment or deliverance. But either way, so like, we're wasting away inside, but we can be strengthened inside. We, we present all kinds of obstacles before God, but we have to remember that the Jesus who died and rose again can keep all of those promises that he made. And so, while the flesh focuses on obstacles, faith looks to the God who can do all things, which brings us to our last part. That God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect purposes. We kind of get back to Sarah here again. She denied or lied. It can be translated both ways. She denied that she laughed. She lied about this laughter. She hid her unbelief out of fear. Would God change His mind? Would God say, This woman doesn't deserve a child. Forget my promise. What we see is that really God gently but firmly confronts her. No. You did laugh. He's honest about her sin. He's honest about her actions and her attitudes. This reveals to us that we cannot hide our hearts from God. God that he sees everything that is in there. Whether it's joy, whether it's incredulousness, whether it's fear, whether it's hatred, doubt, unbelief, he sees it all. One of the passages we, we talked about this morning is that God weighs the heart. He evaluates it. And what we see here Is that God did not reject Sarah despite this unbelief? But rather, he fulfilled his perfect purposes through this scared old woman. Think about that for a moment. If you're going to pick the woman who's going to give birth to the child of promise, why would you pick the old woman? to reveal your power, if you're God. This is not something that could have happened. Doesn't happen unless God is part of the equation. But we're reminded that God still uses these imperfect people, just like Sarah, just like you, just like me. One of my friends is publishing his dissertation. This is one of those many, many steps towards getting a, an actual job at an actual university. Um, <laughs> he's got his Ph.D., and so he's having me look this thing over, and so he mentions uh, Heiko Obermann, who used to teach here at the U of A uh, prior to his death, and um, talking about this tension of, of having to choose between the two Luthers, that there is Luther, the, the, the brave, courageous reformer, and then there's Luther, The guy who wrote these anti-Semitic books that really aren't that good. The sin and the gospel. Which Luther do I choose? And the Bible says you don't choose between the Luthers. There's one Luther. And he did both. Sarah did both. She did things that were, uh, that were godly and for which she is commended in Scripture, and she did things that were not godly and for which she is rebuked in Scripture. And it's the same thing for each of us. We do things that are honorable and we do things that are dishonorable. There are not two Steves. There is one Steve. He does both good and evil. So, we find that the God who justifies the wicked also utilizes them as well. And so, part of how we should re- interact with this is that we can stop the, stop the self-pity and despair that we often put ourselves through. How can God use me? Because of my sin. Okay, we still use David. David. Adulterer and murderer. Got that on your list? He still uses sinners. He, th- he has not cast them out. Three strikes, you're out policy. It's not like Major League Baseball with their drug testing policy. You're, okay, boom, you're done. Have a nice day. He justifies them and he begins to use them. And so part of what it means to live by the gospel is to live free from this guilt and moving toward God. And so, part of what how this comes back to us is what defines you as a person? Do you allow your sin to define you? Is that how you view yourself in light of your particular sin? Or do you pretend to identify yourself in light of how someone has sinned against you. That you are a victim. I interacted with uh, someone on the internet this week, uh, as I I told the Sunday school class, and she doesn't feel guilt. She's been sinned for her great sins. Uh, She feels shame for the ways in which she has been sinned against. She is allowing her her identity to be shaped by the sins that have been committed against her. Both of those ways of thinking about ourselves are incorrect. They will lead us to despair. They will lead us to sitting on the sidelines when God says, get in the game. It is the gospel itself that must define who we are. It is God himself through the gospel who defines who we are. And so uh, I kind of like and don't like interacting with my brother because um, sometimes we have tapes in our head. Certain significant experiences that we've had that that play back and it can be the voice of condemnation from a parent, or it could be the mocking of uh, peers, it could be any number of things. He's got tapes in his head. And I told him one day, he needs some new tapes. Because all of his tapes result in him being depressed and miserable. And that's the beauty of it: is that Part of what God does is say, yeah, I know you've been listening to all that junk for all these years, but I've got some new tapes for you. I want to tell you that I love you. I want to tell you that I made you in my image. And though that image has been distorted and destroyed by sin and misery, I am about to fix it. You don't need to hide in a corner and pretend that you don't exist. You need to come with me and you need to walk in my world. Back to to Genesis 17. Walk before me blamelessly. Stop listening to your sinful nature. Stop listening to all the people that made fun of you when you were a kid. Stop, whatever it is. We all got something different. we we, we, We tend to identify ourselves through these ways and we see all these obstacles and so we start, we start living by sight instead of by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we live by this sight, by what we can see, what we perceive, what we've experienced and to live by sight is in fact to live by unbelief, ignoring the invisible God who possesses all the power needed to keep his promises. Faith is honest about the obstacles. Sarah was old, advanced in years, and worn out, and the way of women had gone from her. But it rests in the God who promised. And so God used Sarah, not because Sarah was really good, but because God is. Not because Sarah was Powerful and had it all together, but because God did. And so, even our unbelief in those moments does not remove us from the sphere of grace because it relies upon Him, not us. Now, mention what I said there those moments of unbelief. Not rejection of the gospel, but sort of like that dad I believe, help my unbelief. We still have those moments. Those moments don't mean it's done because God's promised fulfillment does not depend upon you in any real ultimate way, shape, or form. It depends upon him. So I feel like I'm belaboring that point. So let's, we're done. Let's pray. Father, we struggle to keep our minds on things above. Um, It is so foreign to our nature, precisely because our, our nature is sinful. We find things below too compelling, too important. And it is only you that can change that by opening our eyes to how great and glorious you are. It is only with this compelling vision that we will trust you, long for you, and seek you with all of our heart all of our mind, all of our soul and strength. So I ask that you would be shifting our gaze from our circumstances to your great love, power, grace, justice. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Savior of sinners and the sanctifier of the saints. Amen.